would you describe this music? It's full of driving energy, positively straining at the leash in its determination to press forward. But it's also very repetitive, even a bit obsessive, you might say. For some, this first movement of Schumann's Second Symphony is exuberant, exultant even. Others find the repetition disturbing. And some critics have given Schumann a rap over the knuckles for that. This isn't true symphonic development. Schumann isn't pursuing a goal, as for instance Beethoven famously does in his great symphonic allegros. This is more like a dog, endlessly maniacally chasing its own tail, rushing around with great energy and vitality, but never really getting anywhere. But should we consider this a fault? Perhaps this isn't a simple failure to produce a conventional symphonic argument, as some people have thought. Perhaps this very tension is symptomatic of a different kind of spiritual struggle. If that music strikes you as the product of some deep personal conflict, there's plenty of biographical evidence to back that up. At the time he wrote the Second Symphony, in the mid-1840s, Schumann was plagued by all manner of torments, physical and mental. He suffered from ringing in the ears, and from pains he described as rheumatic. Along with these went recurrent sleeplessness and depression. In fact, for a time in 1845, his illness became so severe that he was hardly able to compose at all. His problems have been ascribed to syphilis and, more recently, to his being manic-depressive. Both are plausible, and in either case, the strain on his sanity must have been enormous. Whatever, Schumann himself was sure the symphony mirrored his battle with debilitating illness. I sketched it while I was still suffering, he wrote. I think I can say that it reflects and was influenced by the resistance of my spirit against my physical condition. The first movement is full of this struggle, and is of a capricious and obstinate nature. Well, that could easily be made to fit the music we've already heard. But we haven't looked at the way the Second Symphony begins yet. At first, there doesn't seem to be much evidence of struggle, of capriciousness or obstinacy. The main element appears to be this fanfare-like brass figure. That seems a pretty conventional formula for starting a symphony. In fact, it's very similar to the imposing call to attention that begins Haydn's last symphony, number 104.
There's one big difference, though, between that and Schumann's beginning. Schumann's fanfare is quiet. It's marked pianissimo. It seems strangely reticent, or perhaps we're to imagine that it's happening at a distance, a summons or a challenge sounding from somewhere far off. And that isn't the whole picture. There's another element, evenly flowing crotchets on strings. Because of the way the strings and brass are laid out in the orchestra, we get the impression that the brass are sounding through or across the string figures, which seem to be happening somewhere closer to the audience, between us and the brass fanfares. You might compare it to a view of a castle or a cathedral, seen from the other side of a great river. Whatever the imagery you decide on, those string figures aren't there just for decoration. Try and keep the first six notes at the back of your mind. That figure's going to be important later on. And notice how quickly it returns. Something of that obsessive, obstinate character, the dog running round and round in circles after its tail, is already hinted at here. Woodwind offer a contrasting motive. For a moment, it seems that the circle has been broken. But then the fanfares and the flowing string figures return. The circling motion has merely broadened to take in the new idea.
With an abrupt chord for almost the full orchestra, Schumann attempts to break the circle himself. The tempo increases, the harmony changes, and the woodwind motif we heard a moment or two ago compresses itself and takes on a dotted rhythm. That dotted rhythm intensifies. Perhaps now we have an idea with the energy to take us away from the circling music of the beginning and set an argument in progress. This new music is much more dramatic, purposeful. The jabbing, loud, soft contrasts are rather like a motorcyclist repeatedly trying to kickstart his engine. But then the brass fanfare returns. And we hear a version of the flowing even crotchets from the beginning. The circle hasn't been broken after all. A new strategy is needed. Schumann seizes on those flowing crotchets and begins to crank up the tempo. So now we can see how that dogged, persistent repetition in the music that opened the programme has arisen. Schumann slips the clutch, sticks his foot down on the accelerator and sets off for new territory. Only as we've already heard at the start of this programme, this music finds it equally hard to leave that incessant circling. In fact, Schumann, strictly following the rules of classical symphonic form, repeats this entire section. But this just serves to underline his dilemma. He's been striving with all his energy to get away from the circling motion of the introduction. But even this music ends up by going back over its tracks all over again. It's becoming obvious why Schumann saw this music as encapsulating his struggle with his mental illness. After the repeat, Schumann makes yet another attempt to get away from this musical wild goose chase. The woodwind enter with strangely plaintive new figures, which also seem to get caught in the repetitive trap. Those woodwind figures at the end may seem new at first, but they aren't really. They too come straight from that slow introduction. 
the three-note rising and falling idea is clearly derived from this. While this chromatic lamenting phrase is a slightly modified version of that flowing string phrase from the very beginning of the work. So this is all really old ground. We haven't broken new territory at all. Perhaps now we can understand why, in the next big crescendo, Schumann seems to strain at the leash even more desperately, pushing the music further and further from the home key of C. As before, there's an element in that orchestral texture that puts up resistance to Schumann's attempts to drive the music onwards. No matter how deliberately the music pushes towards new harmonic areas, the timpani go on doggedly insisting on their two notes of C and G, rooting us in the home key of C major. So, when the recapitulation begins, restating the main themes back in the home key, it isn't so much a return, a homecoming. It's debatable whether we've ever really left home at all. I can understand why some listeners find this frustrating, claustrophobic, but perhaps the problem for them is that they're expecting Schumann to be somebody else, Beethoven perhaps. If you forget that comparison, then the way Schumann dramatises this tension can be tremendously exciting. It's in the closing bars of this first movement that the strange, double-edged character of this music becomes most apparent. Schumann notches up the tempo once again, pushing the music forward still more determinedly. But then the brass fanfare from the opening of the symphony cuts through on trumpets, this time loud and definitely in the foreground. It's no longer the distant summons from the beginning. That, at least, has changed. Still... The end of the movement is at the very least emotionally ambiguous. You could hear it as Schumann's exultation at having got through this capricious, obstinate movement. But the final chords, pounding out the home key of C major, might represent something more tragic, the ramming home of the fact that the circle of fate can't be broken. We're back where we began, and Schumann's heroic great escape was doomed from the start. Thank you. 
After the first movement, which seemed rooted to the key of C, the next movement, the scherzo, seems for an instant to be setting off in another harmonic direction. But that ambiguous opening is swiftly brought down to earth, back to, that's right, C major. So this movement is to be in C as well. In fact, all four movements of Schumann's second symphony are in the key of C, either C major, or in the slow third movement, C minor. This is very unusual in a symphony, and it's especially striking after the first movement's relentless fixation with C major. Again, Schumann seems to try to push the music away from C, once more taking that opening flicker, but this time using it to move further away from the home key of C. This time he seems to have more success. At the end of that passage we're in G minor, and the next section eventually lands in the remote key of B minor. But then trumpets and drums return implacably back in C major. Just as we seem to have prized ourselves out of the iron grip of this key, it returns yet again. The circle may have widened, it's far from broken. Instead of providing light relief, this scherzo actually intensifies the tragic side of the first movement's struggle. However light and humorous the ideas in this scherzo may seem, it still remains stuck in the first movement's fateful circular pattern. Perhaps that's why Schumann's second remains the most neglected of his four symphonies. So much of the material, if you take it out of context, sounds bright, exuberant, playful even. After all, this is C major, not the tragic Beethovenian C minor. But the processes at work behind that seemingly cheerful surface are inexorable, oppressive. Schumann's use of tragic irony in his song cycles is well known. But here, the irony works on a much larger scale. Schumann now springs a welcome surprise with the first of his two trio sections. The key shifts to G major, the first extended passage in a key other than C in the symphony so far. Now the mood does seem genuinely skittish and playful. But this music, too, eventually fragments, falling back again into the circling scherzo music. Mm -hmm. 
The second trio section tries another kind of contrast, a soothing hymn-like tune for strings. But again, these more hopeful chorale phrases break up into smaller units, with at first hints, then more than hints, of the original scherzo theme. This second movement has given us by far the longest respites from C major fixated circling. But the return of the scherzo music again and again, incessantly pattering along, only amplifies the sense of the music being trapped in something. What at first might sound playful becomes increasingly nervy. At the end of the movement, trumpets, horns and drums return to pound home C major. Then the fanfare from the very opening of the symphony sounds once more fortissimo. In conventional romantic terms, this is a gesture of triumph. But given the nature of the music so far, one's entitled to ask, whose triumph? <laughs> I said earlier that all four movements of Schumann's Second Symphony are in the key of C. More C major after that second movement would, I feel, have been close to unbearable. The darker tones of C minor now present a welcome and refreshing contrast. After all that ironic, one might say increasingly desperate cheerfulness, the undisguised lyrical melancholy of this third movement, the Adagio, feels like a blessed relief. Now, at last, all pretense of jollity has been dropped.
We've seen remarkably little of Schumann the melodist in the first two movements of his second symphony. But now this adagio offers splendid compensation. The lines seem to unfold seamlessly, yet at the same time it's easy to pull out tiny memorable details. There's that very first violin phrase, for instance, which, for all its romanticism, might remind us of how much Schumann admired Bach. Then there was that wonderful descending seventh, like a deep sigh. But there's something else that's different about this movement, something that happened in the passage we played a moment ago. Quietly, gently, with no apparent struggle, the music has at last moved firmly away from C. to E-flat major. In this new key, the music builds to a radiantly beautiful climax, which rises on the first violins to a high D, stratospherically high, for the first half of the 19th century. It's the kind of dangerously exposed writing that earned Schumann yet more raps on the knuckles in his own day, but how spine-tingling it sounds on a modern orchestra. On this occasion, it seems Schumann was genuinely ahead of his time. Melancholy and inward-looking this slow movement may be, but it completely avoids the obsessive, trapped circling that gave the first two movements an increasingly nightmarish character. When this movement at last comes to rest in C major again, it's a C major that seems to have been purged of all its former nervous frenzy. It reminds me of a famous verse from the biblical book of Proverbs, A soft answer turneth away wrath, you might well hear an element of angry frustration in the first two movements thwarted heroics. Now, Schumann has found a way to transform the character of the symphony by rejecting masculine, Beethovenian heroics in favour of something, well, it really does seem like a more feminine kind of problem-solving. Tenderness, openness, patience have succeeded where the clenched fist failed. 
Now comes the finale. This is actually the most original and the easiest to misunderstand of the symphony's four movements. At first, it sounds as though Schumann is working himself up for an uncomplicated celebration. With a cavalier opening gesture, he sweeps from C to what sounds like a new key, G major. That's an illusion, though. The next passage lands us firmly back into C major. This idea is then extended into an extrovert figure for full orchestra, dominated by the dotted rhythm. Does that sound familiar? In fact, it's a reworking of a phrase from the first trio of the scherzo, the point at which the symphony broke away from the hold of C major for the first time. A little later, there's another reminiscence of something past. This triplet fanfare figure recalls the slow horn fanfares from the slow movement, where the symphony moved still more decisively away from C. If that connection sounded a bit tenuous, the next one certainly won't. As the finale moves unequivocally towards G major, cellos, clarinets and bassoons sing out this phrase. And that's unmistakably related to the first phrase of the adagio. So the finale seems to be playing back ideas from earlier in the symphony ideas associated with the more positive stages in the argument. It really does seem that this is to be a celebration of triumph. This music sounds a lot more genuinely positive than anything in the first two movements. The vicious circle has been broken, and Schumann goes into festive overdrive. But could there be an element of hubris in all this? 
were in danger of forgetting that it was Schumann's feminine thinking that finally broke the C major fixated cycle of fate, in which case all this manipulation is distinctly out of place. And now comes a reminder, the adagio's first phrase returns upside down on clarinet, this time with a note of unease. In a remarkable transition passage, more and more phrases from the adagio come back, and as they do so, the music begins to lose its hectic vitality. The rejoicing fades, until at last the music comes to a dead stop. And so Schumann's celebration finale gives up the ghost in C minor, the key of the adagio. In fact, this doesn't feel like a simple recollection of the slow movement. We've actually gone back to it. But the dark, fateful minor key seems a world away from the serenity achieved there. So what next? The only solution seems to be to begin again, and that's what Schumann does, with a brand new theme and, at first, a hint of a new key. Unlike most of the themes we've heard so far, this has a song-like character. Well, the lyricism of the slow movement seemed to provide more direction than the motive-led would-be heroics of the first two. Perhaps this new theme will lead us towards some sort of resolution. There's something else about this new tune that's rather interesting. Let's take just the first phrase. That's a clear deliberate reference to a work by Beethoven, the song cycle Andi Ferner Geliebter to the Distant Beloved. It's the first phrase of the final song, Beloved, take these songs that I sang to you. There seems to be a message here 
a message one person in particular would have understood. Schumann's wife, Clara, for whom he wrote so many of his finest songs, is surely the person to whom Schumann is paying tribute. With that in mind, all this business about the failure of masculine heroics and the triumph of gentler, subtler feminine thinking takes on extra significance. So the finale begins by pursuing one course, then fails, then comes to what appears to be a full stop. Only a radical rethink, a new theme and a new way forward can restart the process and turn the achievement of the slow movement into a lasting triumph. If you're expecting this movement to behave like a typical symphonic finale, then you'll get lost, and you may end up blaming Schumann, as many of his critics have. Even one of Schumann's great admirers, Franz Liszt, seemed to be caving into the critics when he wrote this description of Schumann. No one can fail to recognise that Schumann strove to reconcile his romantic personality, torn between joy and pain, with the modalities of classical form, whereas the clarity and symmetry of such forms lay beyond his characteristic spirit. Liszt goes on, This struggle against his true nature must have caused him great suffering, and it has stained even his most beautiful pages with the blood that flowed from the open wound. That's very poignant, but I think it misses the point. Schumann's Second Symphony doesn't suffer from the tension between classical expectations and dark inner drives. It expresses those tensions with great power and pathos, then shows us how Schumann found another way through them. As the motif from Beethoven, the motif of song and love, combines with the brass fanfares from the beginning of the symphony, the obsessive struggles of the first two movements really do seem to have been resolved via one of the most original and deeply satisfying processes in romantic symphonic literature. Now at last, we can feel that the rejoicing has been earned. Mm -hmm.